Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Eating Crow Podcast. Here's your host, Pete Durand. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another compelling episode of the Eating Crow podcast. Uh, I am honored to host Ed Rochise on the call. And Ed, we've known each other about two years. Uh, and I've been looking forward to getting you on the show because, and I'm going to get into this, I've watched your leadership style from afar, right? My wife actually worked at your company. And she would come home and say, you have to see this email. She goes, I might get in trouble showing you this. But she's like, look at the way this guy communicates. So there's a lot there. And obviously, Ed, you, you've got another big thing that, that you've got going on in your career and personal life. I think you're really passionate about. We want to get into that as well. So why don't you get our listeners up to speed on what you're doing today with Holidays for Heroes, and then we'll kind of walk our way back through your background. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited uh, uh, to be with you today. Um, the Holidays for Heroes thing is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, I don't know, last year, you probably remember, maybe some of your listeners as well, I threw out a simple five sentence um, call to action uh, out on LinkedIn uh, in Thanksgiving of last year. And the, the call to action was, hey, do you know anybody in the active duty military that can't afford maybe getting home for Christmas this year? I'll buy five tickets out of my own pocket and we'll send some soldiers home for Christmas or New Year's, et cetera. Well, the thing took off, uh, it went viral. Uh, to uh, it, it, most viral thing I've ever been associated with. We're and, too old to understand what viral means, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and the thing took a life of its own that uh, ended up being on HLN, all the CBS, ABC, NBC affiliates nationwide. I was getting snapshots of TVs from Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing just sort of took off. It struck a chord with folks. And um, I looked at it over the winter and was like, you know, I think I should legitimize this and create a real 501c3 not-for-profit company mm-hmm. um, and uh, that uh, came to fruition this past uh, 60 90 days um, currently uh, running uh, a holidays for heroes campaign uh, we're trying to get a hundred active duty military home this year for thanksgiving christmas hanukkah kwanzaa new year's wow. uh, uh, whatever we can do. So uh, it's been amazing the traction that we've gotten off of it already. Uh, far surpassed anything I thought. And, um, you know, really thankful to my network and how they've been sharing the message. And you know, right now, uh, we're about uh, 20 to 23 people funded for this year's season. So wow. I think we'll be, we'll, we'll nail the 100 is what I'm hoping. What a great thing to be able to do. And you served as well, didn't you, Ed? Yeah, I was a, I'm a five-year Air Force veteran, um, you know, uh, very fortunate in that I was in the military at a time where there were no conflicts or anything like that, so I um, pretty much had an office job, but I've always had a special place for uh, our active duty folks and our veterans. Uh, they don't make a lot of money. They put their lives on the line on a, on a daily basis, and I saw this as an opportunity uh, for me to give back in some way. 
That's wonderful. I, uh, I have a guest coming up in the podcast in a couple of weeks. His name is Jason Van Camp. And he wrote a book called Deliberate Discomfort. Deliberate so discomfort. write that down. It is, in my opinion, one of the top five books on leadership ever written. Uh, awesome. You'll relate to it, you know, being having served in the military, but they do a really great job, Jason and his team, of applying what I'll call masterclass research and science behind each one of the examples in the book. So it's mm -hmm. unusual. Sometimes you see a book of stories and it's a great story. Uh, they've given you really practical advice. And I think I'm going to connect the two of you because I think uh, his company, Mission Six Zero, would completely buy into what you're doing. So I'm happy to make that introduction afterwards, but I know you're a voracious reader. I think you'll enjoy the book and uh, I highly recommend it. Awesome. It's going into my on deck circle. Perfect. So Ed, tell us a little bit, you know, your background is, is varied, right? Um, you've got some interesting educational experience. Um, I wasn't aware of the, the, the community school that you went to for the air force, right? You got some engineering uh, experience and a degree there. And then you went on to get some business education after that. Kind of tell us the thought process of, you know, when you joined the military and decided to get an education, there was a nine-year gap between your engineering degree and your business degree. Um, walk me through kind of how that all transpired. It's fascinating. Yeah, well, I, I will first off say that I have got to be one of the luckiest human beings on the face of the planet. Okay. And, uh, in a few minutes with that. So I joined the military in 1982. Mm -hmm. uh, Ronald Reagan had fired all the air traffic controllers. And in my 18-year-old cranium, I was like, wow, uh, Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers. I'm going to go in the military, learn how to be an air traffic controller, and I will have a job for life. Sure. So um, I get to basic and so cliche. <laughs> that your recruiter lied to you. You can't be an air traffic controller. You wear glasses. How about we teach you, you got one of two choices. Uh, door A is you can become a military police officer, which, okay. hey, I've got a ton of respect for law enforcement, and but it just as a job, didn't, vocation did not you know, appeal to me. Sure. Second was you can learn how to fix computers. Well, I was just a dumb farm kid from Cornfield, Ohio. I'd never actually even seen a computer, but it sounded a lot better. And I'm, you know, I'm glad that I took that route. Um, I... Uh, I spent about five years in the military and took a class or two at a time. I actually had credits from like 11 universities, but it took me 11 years total to get a bachelor's degree, one class, two classes at a time. Wow. Then, then I'd move and, you know, uh, make it up 30% of the credits that I just spent the last two years on wouldn't transfer. I, I think if I probably added up all the credits, you know, I probably have a doctorate three times over, but finally I was able to get a, a, a four-year degree. Uh, I think it was 31 or 32 at the time. Um, meanwhile, holding down full-time jobs, sales jobs, leadership jobs, and uh, just grinding. Yeah. Kids. How many kids do you have? At I got two kids. They're, they're older. I've got a 32-year-old and a 30-year-old, so they're, they're way off, off the radar as far as uh, – <laughs> Well, there's not a lot of people that spend 11 years going to school. At least and actually finish. <laughs> and, and finish. I went, well, I went to college with a couple of guys that spent seven or eight years, but they weren't, uh, they were still on campus. <laughs> mm. It's a little different experience. So yeah. what's, you know, I, by the way, it's totally understandable. You're thinking air traffic controller and somebody throws MP in front of you. That's very, very different. How totally. did the, uh, how did the experience working with computers 
translate to your first jobs out of, out of, you know, out of the military? What did, you know, what were the opportunities back in the eighties? Yeah, again, I was so lucky, um, right place, right time, right skill set. I ended up getting recruited by a company called Prime Computer. And for those of a certain age, remember them as a pretty large manufacturer of mid-frame, uh, mid-range computing systems. And actually how I got my start in sales, uh, I, I sort of call it lucky lightning bolt uh, number two for me. About a year in, I'm watching all these salespeople coming out of the office, fancy clothes, beautiful cars, brand new houses, didn't yep. seem like they were working all that hard. I'm like, I want that life. So I bugged the sales manager, you know, probably not as obnoxiously as every day, but it sure felt like that probably to him. And um, Prime had signed an OEM agreement, an OEM, you know, sales agreement, distribution agreement with this little company in San Jose. They were $90 million at the time. They made this box called a bridge router that connected local area networks up with the internet. Um, they, uh, I think that sales manager thought he was throwing a bone at me just to make me go away, but it was the second biggest awesomeness, uh, lucky strike for me in my career that could have happened. That little $90 million company was Cisco Systems. Sure. And literally the sales skills required to be successful selling Cisco Systems at that time was here's my fax number, get me the PO, I have five left. If you don't want them, the next person on the phone will take them. Do I have your order? That was it. Those, those, day, those days don't happen anymore. No, they don't. I'm sure maybe there's some stuff that's selling sure. that, but wow, what a, and, and uh, it set me up though, because uh, 10 years after that, um, I got involved in the software space, and, you know, I've been very lucky to have been affiliated with five, uh, six, actually, uh, companies that have gone from X to Y and had great exits, either via public markets or private equity sale. Well, that's great. And you get it. If you can catch Cisco's tail at the beginning of it, uh, you definitely had the ride of your life there. Yeah, uh, I wish it, uh, I could tell you it taught me uh, everything I needed to know about selling but you literally, like, I've got five left. List price is $9,999. Here's the fax number to send me your PO. Have a nice day. There are some people that still think that's how sales works, but it's not. <laughs> no, not at all. So, Ed, let's, uh, I'm going to jump into some of the things you've done recently in your career and bring a couple examples up. And then we'll get into, as you mentioned, you've got several moments where you've eaten some crow. And I think... You've had a lot of diversity in your career. You've, you're a well-respected leader. So I'm going to talk about the transition from an individual sales contributor to building teams and eventually running companies very successfully. So the story I'll share, and then you can kind of walk us back to how you arrived at this style. But I mentioned my wife, she, she worked in sales support at, at, at Dude Solutions where you were CEO. And, you know, um, when you joined the company, obviously fast growing business, taking it, you know, taking it from where it was to, you know, I think to the, to the heights it is today, you were definitely involved with that scale, right? That's what you came mm -hmm. in with the business. But what I was surprised at is the level of detail and the frequency of communication you did for every employee, right? So mm -hmm. you put, and I, I don't know if it was weekly or, or monthly, but these emails were incredibly detailed, incredibly positive. You didn't glance over the challenges, right? If there was a challenge the business was facing, you, you brought it out, you highlighted it, said there's a plan, but it was always forward leaning. It was always taking the company forward. And her reaction, which, and by the way, 
you, you, you can, you've probably heard this, but it's great when someone says everyone around me that reads these emails is inspired. I think that's the ultimate form of leadership. If you can inspire people to perform. So where did you pick up this communication style and, and how did you refine it? Yeah, I, I wish I could say there was one, you know, penultimate aha moment when it came to communications, but there wasn't. I, um, I, I like to say to people, I've never had a, an original idea of my own. I've usually just borrowed, you know, good things that I've seen from other people and, and apply. Yep. I, I think, you know, as an amalgamate of things I've read, podcasts, um, good leaders that I've come in contact with, the, the, a couple of sort of key themes um, popped out that I said, if I ever got my, to myself, if I ever got myself into a spot where I'm, I am the person leading the company, I'm going to lean in on transparency. So, you know, almost every number, you know, there's some numbers you keep sensitive, but almost every sure. number you can find, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, broadcast it i'm going to do i'm going to do board meeting reviews with any employee who wants to see the board deck i'm going to write about what's happening in the company i'm going to talk a lot i'm going to have lots of meetings so that people can feel part of the mission part of the decision making process they see the same data that i do they might not always agree with what i ultimately do with that data or the sure. decision I have to make. Um, but at least, uh, you know, like most of the people would say, wow, okay, interesting. I see that. I see what he's doing. I'm not sure I'd do it that way, but I can understand how he got there. And you get a lot of buy-in, you know, versus, I don't know what's happening. They just came up with this stupid, you know, idiotic decision and now I got to execute it. And so um, that's one facet. The other facet is, you know, look, as a CEO, the, the tone at the top is the thread that gets pulled through to every employee, every level in the company. Yeah. And if I'm boring, if I am um, uh, non-inclusive, if I'm not interesting to read, that's going to permeate the organization. And I didn't want to be associated with the idea that, yeah, you know, they could fog a mirror over there on a Tuesday, but not on a Wednesday. So sure. do it that way. And, you know, as you were, you know, growing the organization, scale was challenging and hiring people at that mm -hmm. pace, right? And making sure you got the right talent. So yeah. how did you balance speed, right? You got to get the people in butts and seats to get the work done with making sure that the right people got in the seats. And, and tell us about any lessons you learned there. Yeah, so I think the first lesson any leader, um, any leader could take and, and learn from is hire that next layer and make sure they are the next layer of your direct reports and make sure that there are some common philosophies around what makes a, a great employee, what are some of the traits you look for, what are we not going to compromise on, what will we compromise on, and, and really um, multiply your own uh, sort of standards on hiring to say your next layer of leadership. And they do the same and they do the same and they do the same. So when you're hiring a lot of people at a, at a you know, a fast clip, I mean, there were some months we were hiring 30 people. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, 
you got to count on your team because you can't be the person interviewing every employee. I've seen people try to do that and they fail miserably. There's no way you can do it fast enough. So you have to replicate with that next layer of leadership and the next layer of leadership, what you're expecting. Yeah, that's true. Pushing the decision-making out to the edge is a really important part of leadership. Mm -hmm. When you think about leadership versus management, you know, I've heard the, obviously this is one of the points that podcast is leadership and entrepreneurship. Sure. I, I'm always fascinated by the, the comparison that you can manage products, you can manage things, but you lead people. Yep. And, and, and I agree with that. So when you're hiring key leaders in an organization, what are the things that you're looking for? And by the way, it's hard to do in an interview process, right? You can only learn so much. But when you're thinking about people that are going to take the style you're trying to get through the organization and propagate it through the whole company, what are the key things you're looking for? Yeah, I think you know, there's, there's probably a couple of things. Obviously, mechanical competence for the job that they're being hired to do. Yeah. Like that's table stakes. You have to be able to do the job. Secondly, uh, broader, I look for broader shoulders than maybe um, the job that they're currently being hired for. Like every employer I'm looking for is like, wow, can, can Peter, you know, throw a few more bricks on his back? And if not, um, you know, that might be okay, but maybe not. Um, high EQ um, yes. is critical. Uh, I'm also looking for high character, um, you know, looking for people that have learned that, you know, doing things the right way might take longer, but you have a lot less to apologize for later than maybe taking some shortcuts that you wish you had back. Um, so I think those are some of the things I look for. Um, intellectual curiosity. I don't know if you ever interviewed somebody where you get to the end and it's like, Hey, I've done all the, the questions and talk and some of the talking here. Do you have any questions for me? And they just look at you like, mm, no, like. So that's a red flag for me. Oh, it's such a huge red flag. And, yeah. you know, so those are some of the things I look for. From an EQ standpoint, drill, let's drill down there. I, it's, to me, it's one of the biggest skills lacking in a lot of organizations. Mm -hmm. And EQ, EI, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, for me, and I, and I see it in your writing, and I see it the way you treat people, EQ involves a lot of different components. Empathy is a big thing, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, understanding where the other person is coming from is really important, putting yourself in their shoes, and then taking a breath and recognizing there's a very key moment in how I communicate with this individual that's going to determine our relationship, quite frankly, for a long time. Yep. And if you can't, it's hard to recover from those moments. So... The, the book I described earlier, Deliberate Discomfort, spends a lot of time on this, which I don't know that people realize the importance of these characteristics in the military and how important they can translate into the working world. Mm -hmm. uh, Jason and his team made an interesting point. They said, look, our job is to not make you better, Ed. Our job is to make the person next to you better, right? That should be your goal. How do I make my teammate better? Because if, if I'm helping them improve through service, we all win. And that's a hard thing for some leaders to digest. So how do you, how do you, first of all, translate EQ on your own front? And then how do you pull it out of your team? Yeah. So um, maybe a little bit of context. If you would have known me 15 years ago, 20 years ago, EQ and, and ED ed, um, not said in the same breath. Understood. I, 
I was a jerk, um, quick to judge, unempathetic, uh, driven for results to a point of fault. And as a result, um, you know, I probably turned away a lot of good people for my management style and, you know, that, uh, you know, eating crow podcast. I think that's that, you know, when I came to that realization, it's like, wow, um, that's how I operate. And it wasn't until I went to the center for creative leadership, um, which is a, you know, CCL is a pretty widely rec respected leadership training school where I got feedback from people around me about my leadership style, I, I was ready to stop leading people. And I, luckily I worked for a CEO who after getting back, and I, I basically said, I don't think I can do this for you anymore. And he just looked at me and was like, we all, when we go to CCO, we all go through this. Did you learn something about yourself? And I said, yeah. And that is, I'm going I'm to learn how to, I'm not even sure we used EQ back then, but the equivalent of whatever the term was, emotional quotient back then. And so, um, you know, I, I've come a long way and so much a long way that I actually forgot the darn question you asked me that set me on this path. Well, you, you're, you're, you leaned into it, right? So I was trying to pull out the eating crow moment and you just got to it, which is how did you learn to imply that EQ or empathetic approach? And you described the fact that you got some feedback you know, inform you that you weren't leaning in that direction. Yeah. And it's interesting. I've been to, uh, so around the research triangle area is, is Bell Leadership. Mm -hmm. So my company did the same thing for us when I was a CEO. This is 15 years ago now. And uh, same thing. I, I uh, it, it, by the way, you can't turn off the competitive nature, right? So they mentioned that Michael Jordan went through the program and he got a score of whatever this thing was, like a 90. I'm like, I'm getting it at 90. I got to get a 90. And, um, I, can't beat him. I can't beat him on the court. I'll beat him on this. Oh, goodness gracious. There's no way. And I'm not even going to share what I got, but it wasn't a 90. And same thing, my team, you do a 360, right? And your team rates you in all these things. And what's really interesting is my perception of how I thought I was leading the team and my perception of their perception couldn't have been further from the truth. Isn't it just stone cold killing when it's, that happens? It sucked. You know, and I looked at them, I wanted to hug them all and say, I'm sorry, I had no idea. And it, it was great because all of us went and we did 360s on each other. And I think the only reason I got lucky is I subconsciously, that wasn't consciously, I had put people in place in my leadership team that addressed my weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So we were still highly functional, but I wasn't leading the way I needed to be leading. And so that was an eating crow moment for me as well, where I thought, geez, I got to, I got to really change the way I listen and the way I respond. So when you came back and you, fortunately you had a CEO that said, Hey, look Ed, we all learned this. What did you pick up? How did you, how did you adjust? How did you make that pivot? Yeah. I think, uh, first off, I gathered the team of direct reports that, um, had been so kind to give me that feedback. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I sort of had a uh, come to Jesus moment with them where I said I was sorry and that I gave them permission and the right that if they saw me acting like that again, call me on it. Yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe not in a, a room full of 50 people, but, sure. but call me on it. And, and then if I react poorly, call me on that too. And so... 
um, over time and experimenting and working with people and getting feedback uh, and also watching others commit the same mistakes or errors that I made and watching how people recover from those, I sort of honed where I'm at. But e even, <laughs> I, I look back on my three years at Dude, there are, there are a couple of times there where it's like, you doofus, really? Is that how you are? Is that who you are? Mm -hmm. Come on. Yeah, well, you know, it, the fact that you're aware of it indicates that the training was successful and you re rethought your process. It's when you're not aware of it that it really becomes a problem. So when you think specifically about one of the characteristics you mentioned was you were quick to judge. What, what practice did you put in place to slow your pace of judgment or to gather more information at any given time? Yeah, I think there's probably a number of tools that I've used through the years. So first off, um, that three second pause before you open your mouth. Yep. Oh, so, so powerful. Um, more Socratic questioning. Okay, I don't assume that you know where this is going. Ask a few more questions. Sometimes you're right. Oftentimes you're not. Yep. Um, uh, asking, uh, just listening more because I find, you know, if somebody comes to you, especially if you're a CEO or COO or whatever, with a problem or a challenge, um, they'll, they come to you because either they're looking for validation. Hey, I've got an idea on how to fix this. Do you agree with me? Mm -hmm. Or they're totally stumped. And the last thing that they want is to get a pie in the face because they ask you, Hey, I got this puzzle dude, can you help me out? I've never yeah. seen this before. And the more that I've learned to, okay, interesting. How about, uh, how did you think about this? What did you think about that? When did that occur? When you said X, what did they say Y? And what you end up doing by asking a lot of Socratic questions is you're actually training those people to say, wow, um, next time I see a problem like this, I remember, you know, I went up in the CEO's office and here's what he did and here's the qu types of questions he asked. I'm going to do that next time and I'm going to learn. And that's how you train a, uh, an executive team or leadership team to solve almost every problem before it hits your desk. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you can pass that kind of listening skills mm -hmm. down to your team, then again, you spread out and distribute the decision-making process. Yeah. Um, when you think about, you know, leading a very fast paced, high pressure organization is private equity backed, right? So growth is, is, is primary. Growth and profitability. Growth. And, and by the way, sometimes they don't have the same, same objectives. And sometimes they ask you to do both, which is really hard, right? Yeah. There's companies that can grow, but doing it profitably is a bigger challenge. Yeah. So, um, you know, tell us about your experience in the, in, you know, in a sales focused role, then you moved into leadership roles and then eventually to the dude. What's the, what's the way to get people to rally around that tension to drive growth and still profitability? Because what happens is you start to push people to capacity before you add another resource. Yeah. Um, what's your gut on making those decisions and how did you get people to buy into the concept? Yeah. So I've learned a lot um, in that area. I've also learned what doesn't work and, and, and where I got to at the dude is I had a, a unique opportunity when the company was sold uh, from mm -hmm. one private equity firm to another private equity firm. And I made 
uh, a case and a conscious decision that the top 60 leaders in the organization, which was not um, where we were before, would all get meaningful option grants. And as part of that, it wasn't just some paper, I would have monthly ownership meetings with the option holders where we would go through almost our, our, um, uh, our monthly business report that we'd show to the board. We'd talk about issues. I'd, I'd talk about where, I was, where we were stuck as an org, what I needed them to do to help. And for that set of leaders, they felt like part of the, the decision-making process because they truly were treated like owners. They were getting the same bits of data and, and all of that as the ownership team. I think where it gets harder is when you get into the rank and file where you're just simply unable because of cap tables and things like that. Sure. Equity mm -hmm. around. Um, and I would say, I would give myself a C plus, maybe a B minus for this as CEO really trying to help them understand, hey, you might think you're an accounts payable clerk, but let me show you how that actually impacts the mission and how our, our clients need you 24-7, you know, figuratively speaking, and yeah. why what you do is matters, you know, and I, I use that analogy, I think I heard it back many years ago, the space shuttle, um, one of the space shuttle missions had to have been scrubbed for the lack of a 10 cent washer yeah. on a part. And, and uh, I always try to make that translation to some of maybe the, the less glamorous positions with folks that, hey, you're, you're pretty damn critical. Uh, that 10 cent washer, you might think you're that 10 cent washer, but you're actually gonna hold the shuttle on the ground. because we Darn need right. To, yeah. Darn right. Yeah, that's true. And getting people to understand their role in the team. I love the idea of getting you know, the key leaders in the organization bought in as owners. Yeah, uh, it changes the way they get to the team, and they'll lead their teams differently. Yeah, and I would call the meeting owner monthly ownership meeting, and I would uh, you know call them fellow owners, you know, and invites and things like that. Did you get resistance from the P firm to do that initially? No, um, that's great. They scratched their heads like, "Well, we haven't seen that done before," but I guess it's harmless. It's like they're seeing the numbers. We're just you know, they're getting options. We want them to be especially for the huge lift that we have to do mm -hmm. put them thinking like owners every day. Right. Right. When you, uh, now you're calling you from California, right? Is that where you're, you're, you're home now? Got it. Mm -hmm. So when you think about taking that into your next passion, which is holidays for heroes, you know, how have you been able to identify people to help fund this effort? Is it organic or are you doing a lot more outreach? Um, first off, uh, I'm very fortunate. I have about a 7,000 um, connection LinkedIn network. Sure. A lot of these people know me from, you know, the past five or six companies. And so um, I've been putting stuff out on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter. And uh, you've seen some of it. You know, yeah. just a picture of the candidate, uh, where they're going to or coming from. And if we're close to funding... And I've been so grateful because my, the network is taking care of those people. And like I said earlier, we're, you know, probably 23, fund, uh, 23 trips funded right now. And we've only been in business technically for a month and 12 days, 13 days. If you think about helping someone who might be listening to this podcast, uh, considering a nonprofit role, mm -hmm. 
is this your first nonprofit role at it? Is it something you gravitated into? It is. It's my first nonprofit role, although I would say tangentially, I was the uh, SVP of sales and worldwide operations at BlackBot, which is a software provider out of Charleston. Yeah. That, that fuels and powers uh, not-for-profits. So I had a little bit of that in my background. Yeah, BlackBot's a really successful organization, a big part of that. Um, what, are, what are you finding about a non? and by the way, every nonprofit has their own mission. Yeah. But what are you finding that, uh, that you can apply from your prior experience and what are you learning that's new? Yeah, interesting. I haven't thought about that yet, but um, I think what I've been able to apply so far is uh, uh, consistent and positive communications, which is really what you want to get out there when you're trying to get people's minds and hearts wrapped around a mission. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's probably something. I think uh, uh, what I probably underestimated is there's a lot of noise out there and you really have to figure out a way to blow the trumpet loud and uniquely um, because there's you know a million other people out there trying to get other people's attention. So I think that's been uh, interesting. Um, I, I would also say I've been lucky in that the network that I've built via business through LinkedIn and, and, and whether it's a company role or a board role or what have you, um, that network pre-existed and it's taken care of, of getting these people home. It is uh, so critical. I, a funny story. My dad hit me up on LinkedIn 20 plus years ago. And my wow. dad is not a social media guy. Mm. Uh, I think someone, he was working at Johnson Controls at the time, and I think someone pinged him with a message on LinkedIn. I don't know if he even consciously knew he invited me. Oh, wow. And, you know, at the time I was, I'm trying to think what I was doing at the time. And I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I got no time for this thing. So I, should, I said no to my dad oh my gosh. <laughs> on, on LinkedIn. 20, my dad was way ahead of the curve. I, I think about the network he would have had and I would have had if I had done this thing 20 plus years ago. 20 years ago, the thing was in its infancy. It was, it was in its infancies. In fact, I'd never even heard of it. That's how, you know. And I was theoretically with, 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 you know, with it. I was a software guy and, and here's right. my dad. And, and my dad uh, to this day has no social media channels whatsoever. It, it, <laughs> it scares he and my mother to death. Um, when we get him on a FaceTime, I think they, they, they think something evil's happening. Right? Yeah, no, it's funny how people run the gamut on that. Yeah. But it's, it's an important lesson. I think when you're, when you're looking at networking and, and with a sales background like you have, and obviously getting back into fundraising, LinkedIn is such a powerful tool. Huge. It is. Uh, I mean, it's how this podcast is growing and it's how I'm identifying people I'd like to have on the podcast because the, and by the way, it takes work. It's just mm -hmm. like anything else. You have to mine it, you have to build it and you have to treat those people with respect and you have to put something out there that is viable content in order for people to take you seriously. Mm -hmm. But if you've done that like you did and you got a network of 7,000 people, and I'm, my, my point is you're enabling the next phase of your career because of the work you've put in for the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I, and I don't take that for granted one bit. And, no. um, you know, it is what you just said there. So, uh, so true that you have to put content out there that people care about or mm -hmm. learn something from or are entertained by. And, you know, LinkedIn, uh, huge props to them you know you look at every other social media platform and yikes it's a cesspool in so many ways um, LinkedIn seems to be uh, a bit of a self-cleaning oven because it's mostly mature bingo 
rules and you know they shut people down by ignoring them um, if they're putting crap out there. That's exactly right. It is self-policing because uh, people want to keep it somewhat business pure. And there are people trying to game it every day. Believe me, that, that stuff happens. But one of the, you know, one of the last points I want to bring up on the, on the podcast is, is how you use LinkedIn at the dude during the initial COVID uh, issues, mm-hmm. right? So you were really frequent, I think, internally, but also externally. So as a leader in an organization going through the same things you were considering, um, I often shared your posts or used material from your posts with our team, like, hey, look, there's no playbook here, mm-hmm. right? Uh, communication's the key. That was one of your key, your key messages. You yeah. have to keep communicating with your people. But also, you hit on this earlier, it was a bit of a calming effect, right? So when people heard from you, it removes the questions that spin them up, right? Yeah. So uh, tell me about, I'm, I'm, I believe the reactions inside the dude were positive. What reactions did you get from the rest of the community um, about those posts? Yeah, um, thanks for that feedback. I got plenty of positivity around how we handled the external communications as well as internal communications, both with COVID and with some of the uh, you know civil unrest and, and all of that. Yes. And I um, I coined uh, four C's as an acronym uh, at the beginning of this, and I feel like I'm going to forget one of the C's for for a wild uh, reason, but you know, communicative, calm, compassionate. And uh, I think there was one more, uh, uh, but I can't remember what it was right now. But, you know, we, we had decks, we, we rolled out the four C's to the leadership team. We talked about them internally. I externally focused it, um, uh, asked for feedback from other corporate leaders on what they were doing. Um, I admitted, you know, internally as well as externally, like, look, they don't train you for this anywhere. We have, none of us have seen this one before. No. And anybody that is telling you they know exactly what to do, run because they don't know what they're doing. No. And um, it resonated and we got, uh, we got the team through. I think it did calm people in a, in a, in a sense and, you know, subsequent challenges uh, that, that the states have had around some of the civil unrest issues. Same thing, like, look, let's just be honest. This is uncharted water. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're here. We're going to plow through. We're going to be consistent. Um, and you know, we're not going to do anything silly. Yeah. And I think, you know, during that period of time, a lot of organizations had to restructure their companies, do some downsizing. You know, the dude was no different. Yeah, the did. way you communicated that announcement was one of the more particular posts that stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that same day you put out a post, you recognized the people that, you know, were affected uh, and it was it was genuine. It was a compassion message that said, "Hey, look, this is not something we want to do, but you know, we had to do, and and we care about you." And I I'm guessing that most of the people that were affected understood. They may not be happy. It didn't make it easy, but I think they recognized where the company was coming from. Yeah. No, I think uh, well said. Um, most gut wrenching decision I have ever had to make as a professional. Needed mm-hmm. every second of it. Um, did the best we could to take care of people on the way out. Yep. Communicated um, as, uh, as thoughtfully and compassionately uh, as we could. And uh, we hired, actually got a few of those folks back um, yep. uh, during my tenure there. But I, I do think 
the way we handled it, people might have said, look, I hate that they had to do this, but you know, they weren't jerks about it. And they were open about why and, and, and all that and you know, had to do it, but it sucked. Well, one of the things that uh, in addition that you did well was you communicated what you knew at the time. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of leaders are waiting for all of the information and that weight causes people to drive up their anxiety level because they don't know either. So saying, hey, here's the plan for today based on the information we have in front of us. Here's our goal. That may change. New data comes in. We got to make an adjustment, but uh, we're going to course correct as necessary, but at least we're going to be open about it. Yeah, very, uh, very, again, very well said. It was uh, exactly how we versed some of the, the communications. Like, look, here's the best I can do. Can't guarantee 90 days from now or 180 days from now, things won't be different. But right now, this is the best we can do. So Ed, as you as you get, by the way, you're in prime time for holidays for heroes, right? This is this is this is yeah. this is it's the it's like tax yeah. season for you, right? I mean, <laughs> it is. Uh, as you get through this, uh, what's next? Do you think you'll double down on this as a nonprofit, or are you going to jump back into another uh, for-profit role? What are you thinking at this point? Yeah, so where I'm at right now is I want to give holidays for heroes at least for this season. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to give it you know, as much as I can give it and, mm-hmm. um, and then pick my head up afterwards and figure out what the next uh, version of, of that is. Um, uh, I am, uh, I was recently named to a board of director role for another software company. I have another one or two that I'm, I'm currently working on. Um, I don't think at the moment that I'm going to go back into sort of 70 hour a week CEO-dom. Um, right. Yeah, a few other things. I got a second book coming out at Thanksgiving. Uh, you got the holidays stuff going on. So right now, you know, between board work, holidays, painting fences uh, out here on my property, I'm, I'm a pretty busy guy. Well, uh, any company would be glad to have you, but I think your, your cause, at least in the short term, has a really big impact. And it's great to see that people that give so much for our country uh, have an opportunity to come home. And, and I know I speak for anybody that's been impacted. They're very grateful. So. Yeah, thanks for seeing it. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, when you link up a person trying to get home with a plane ticket, there's joy there. There is certainly joy there. Well, Ed, it's been great uh, hearing your eating crow moments. And uh, I appreciate you opening up about that. It's not very often leader says, hey, here's what I was, here's where I was stumbling. Yeah. But here's how I got myself back up. So we appreciate it having in the podcast. When you get your next book out, let me know. We'll get that out and publicize that for you as well. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Enjoy it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Eating Crow, available on all podcast platforms. You can follow Pete on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram to join the Eating Crow community. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll see you soon.